Bless you. Thank you for being here tonight. And I echo an amen to that prayer. We live in difficult, challenging times, and we continue to need to understand this word forgiveness because there is anger, there is turmoil, there is restlessness, there is anxiety, there are all kinds of things, emotions, uh, there's warfare going on. We know the one who has the victory, so we don't move to victory, we move from it. It's a position we have in the Lord. We're not going to a victory, the victory is already ours in Christ. And so when you think about worldwide uh, pandemics and dilemmas in Ukraine and Russia and all that's going on, you can't even wrap your mind around it. But understand this, he's God and we're not. And he doesn't say we're to understand everything. In fact, he says there are the secret things belong to the Lord our God, Deuteronomy 29, 29. So if you're one of these people that are always demanding an explanation from God, you'll be highly disappointed because God doesn't always explain himself. He says, trust me. I've got everything under control. So we're going to finish the book of Philemon tonight. It's been our fifth message. It's only one chapter, but I am going faster than our pastor. A couple of words a week, so we're good there. So we're going to finish chapter one, the only chapter of the book of Philemon, when forgiveness doesn't make sense. And I hope that you kind of read ahead since you know where I'm going. And it's a very important passage as we finish it out. And I've read it, I've reread it. I've read it again and reread it. I've meditated on it. I've chewed on it. I've burped it up. I've chewed on it again, as I talked about a few weeks ago. And so uh, you may have some different thoughts and ideas, but I think Paul's coming home very strong in the word obedience. He's talking about being obedient. And so here's what he says. We're in verses 21 through 25 to the end. Let me read them through, and then we'll come back and look at the text. Having confidence... In your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. That is a huge phrase, and I'll explain it. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. And then he listed some people. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, circle that word, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So, so Paul is, is bringing this thing home, and he has gone from every angle. You know, we've seen Philemon on the stage. We've seen Onesimus on the stage, and we've seen Paul. Paul is the facilitator in this. He's the one that's confronting right now. Okay, so sometimes it's costly when God puts you in a position to confront people with the truth because they're like, well, who do you think you are? telling me what to do or confronting me. Well, I was, I'm just being obedient and to the prompting of the Spirit. So you've been in that situation, and Paul's going to kind of clear up something because he had some great issues with a person that's mentioned in this list. And they reconciled, uh, and it's important that we understand that. So Paul's been the facilitator. Onesimus is going to be the forgiven one, and then Philemon is going to be the forgiver. And we'll see this in the text. And this is Paul writing to Philemon, and he says this in verse 21. Having confidence in your obedience. Having confidence. The word for confidence, it means to make a declaration. 
It means to have a, a, a confession, a mark, that, that you have confidence. Paul has confidence in Philemon that when Onesimus goes back, that Philemon, because of his faith in the Lord, and Onesimus, because he's changed, he has confidence in both of them. So the confidence that Paul has in people is incredible. He's an encourager. He is one that exhorts the body of Christ. Remember, he's in prison. He's in prison, so it's kind of hard when you're in prison to always have the right attitude. But if you remember in Philippians, he says, Christ is my life in chapter 1. He's my attitude in chapter 2. And so, so Paul knew what it, li- what, what it was like for, for God to squeeze a message out of him of encouragement in prison. So remember, there's an old man, Paul, in prison. He's writing this. And there's a young Onesimus who's a new believer in the faith who Paul led to the Lord. And Paul also led Philemon to the Lord. So Paul is wrapping this up and he says, I've got confidence. I've got confidence. Not the kind of confidence uh, that's fake, but the kind of confidence that comes from God because God changes lives. So I have confidence in the God who created you and who made you and who who you are, that I have confidence that you're going to do the right thing because it's never wrong to do the right thing. And so this word confidence is a a really huge word. It it means to have surety. It means to be sure, to have confidence. So, So it's a God kind of confidence. And you know, we can be people of confidence because we have the God of all confidence that lives in us. So you may be facing a situation where you need confidence, or you may be facing a situation where you need to be confident in someone else, and God gives us that ability in him. So Paul just makes a declaration and a confession right out of the gate that he's got confidence. Now, he would have every right to say, I'm kind of a little fearful here and a little worried of how this is going to go, because anytime you have two people at a stalemate, oftentimes in a relationship, Maybe unforgiveness is there. You're always wondering who's going to take the first step. Well, we learned in the first part of the chapter that God is the one, the God of grace. Remember we talked about this? Paul talked about grace and peace. So God's the one that took the initiative with us um, in the stalemate. He says, I'll take the initiative and bring grace to you through Jesus Christ. So Paul has this huge confidence. I want you to get this word. It's confidence. It's a declaration, a confession, a mark. And then what, look what his confidence is in. It's important. Confidence in your obedience. In your obedience. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time that God spoke to you and told you to do something and you did it? When was the last time that God spoke to you? Very clearly. See, because God doesn't waste words. If, if God's word came to you, it didn't come to you by accident. It came to you because he wants you to respond to him. So when we respond to him, we respond to him in the word that he's given us. So God reveals himself to those, listen carefully, who are walking in obedience. Who are already walking in obedience. God has no right obligation to give you another word when you haven't obeyed the word that he already gave you to obey. You do it. So what you have to do with revelation and obedience is they're like parallel lines. God is not going to reveal more of himself to you until you obey what he's already told you to do. And in this area of forgiveness, it's really easy to sweep things under the rug. It's really easy just to say, you know, that didn't hurt. No, it hurt. So you take those hurts and you begin to bury them over the years. And a counselor will tell you they're going to come, it's going to come out. 
in an ugly way. So, you know, actually, you know, the, the reality is we, we walk in obedience. We're already walking in obedience. Philemon's walking in obedience to the Lord. He's growing in his relationship. He's got a church in his house. How's Onesimus going to go back to the church in Philemon's house? It, you see, this is going to have a wider effect than just Philemon and Onesimus. Everybody in the church house is watching. Because fractured relationships that happen are reconciled in the church house in the sense of where God's presence and his power is. So the idea is God reveals himself to those that are walking in obedience. So Paul says, having confidence in your obedience. I've got confidence in you. Now, God never expects you to obey what he has not told you to do. He never expects you to obey what he's not told you what to do. So you can't obey what you don't know to obey, but as you walk in the truth of his word and you are obedient to what you already know, then God says, okay, they've been obedient. They're walking in obedience. I'll bless them with another word of obedience. So that's important to understand. So I think you have some people on the stage here that are growing in their faith, all right? So you're not responsible for what you don't know until you do what you know to do in the word. All right? That's important to understand. So obedience is very, very important. So Paul says, I got confidence in your obedience that you're going to do the right thing because the Holy Spirit is kind of setting this thing up, and I believe you're going to do the right thing. But here's what he says. I have confidence in your obedience. I write to you, look at this, knowing that you'll do even more than I say. That's called over-obey. Now, you can obey God, and I can obey God and drag my feet on purpose. You remember with your children? Mow the yard. Dad says, I want the yard done by Thursday when I get home. What do your children do? They drag their feet Monday through Wednesday. When you're coming around the corner at 4.50, they're getting the lawnmower out of the garage. They're going to obey you, but they're going to drag their feet on purpose they're not going to over-obey, they're going to under-obey. So you can drag your feet on purpose with God and still obey, still fulfill it. But that's not what Paul has confidence in. He said, I got, now, there are some, they got to be saved children, but there are some children that when you tell them, I want the yard done at five, you're going to come home at five? And they actually are going to over-obey because you're going to come home. The yard's going to be mowed. It's going to be weed-eated. They're going to edge it. They're going to use the blower, get everything clean, and you're going to come home and say, that's a miracle. No, what you've experienced is over-obedience, over-obey. They are doing more than you've asked of them. Now watch this. Paul says that I know you're going to do more than I say. I'm go you're going to over-obey in this situation. Because you're going to get a word from God to make this right, to reconcile relationships, and I think you're going to do even more. Now, I could be wrong, and I just say that, I could be wrong. I think what he's talking about is that forgiveness is not just a one-time thing that Onesimus has to deal with, nor Philemon. I bet there were other people in their lives, and maybe them themselves, that they still needed to forgive. That's what over-obedience means. I think, if you think about it, Paul's writing, and you remember Paul teaches Onesimus about the gospel, teaches Philemon about the gospel, they respond to the gospel. Onesimus was a slave. 
He ran away, stole some money, and left, and tried to find a safe sanctuary, somehow ran into the Apostle Paul, got saved, now he's going back. So the social ramification of a spiritual transformation is in point here. So some people say, oh no, when you you have your secular life, you have your work life, and then you have your sacred life. Can I tell you what? That's not true. All of life is sacred with God. All of life is sacred with God. So you don't separate your secular life from your uh, sacred life. And what Paul is doing is he's making that point because he's sending him right back in. He, He was a slave, and he says, I want you to receive him. We've already looked at this as a brother. Okay, so, so the response of Philemon is all on him and how he's going to receive Onesimus. Onesimus' job is just to show up, make his way back. All right, so you have this spiritual transformation that's taking place. You have an old man, Paul, a young Onesimus, and you have a fractured relationship here. And what happens in fractured relationships where people don't obey, when people don't over-obey with forgiveness, what happens is there's a dam that's put up in their lives. Watch this. God forgives me and continues to flow his forgiveness in my life. Because I didn't just blow it once today. I blew it multiple times. If you're more spiritual than me, that's fine. But I'm just telling you, God didn't just choose to forgive me of this, and and I'm not ever going to need it again. He continues to flow his forgiveness through me, and it flows through me and to me. Now watch this. If I choose to dam that up, and say, I choose not to forgive this person over here who really wounded me, then that not only puts a dam between me and them, and then they put a dam up in their life, it also creates a dam with my relationship with God. It affects me. And then it affects other people. So it's a, it's a greater effect. It's a wider effect. So Paul says, I got confidence that you're not going to do that. I got confidence that you're going to overobey. And I told you this a few weeks ago, this is important. If you focus on the person, you're going to never forgive them because you will think of more reasons why you shouldn't let them off the hook. But if you'll focus on Christ's forgiveness and let that free-flowing forgiveness flow through you to them, that's when the spiritual impact happens. That's what's taking place here. So he says, I write to you, and I'm having confidence in your obedience that you're going to do more then I say. Now that's a pretty powerful statement here. So let's think about forgiveness again and again. I think in their lives they needed it again and again. It's kind of like going up a down escalator. When you were a kid, you, you would try to run up the escalator and you may take a couple of steps up and then if you just stayed there, it brought you right back down. That's the way it is for, with forgiveness. If you just say, okay, I'm going to forgive them. I'll just, t- I'll just take a step or two up and I'm going to forgive them. What happens is the next day, you're not going to feel like that. You're going to feel angry. So you continue to take steps up the elevator and say, I choose to forgive. I choose to forgive again. I choose to forgive. In Christ, in Christ he has forgiven me more than once. I'm going to choose to forgive. And one day you'll find out as you choose to forgive and live in that fullness and free-flowing river of forgiveness from God, you'll find out one day the escalator stopped and you'll be free. So you don't just choose once because people will hurt you again. So you choose to live in forgiveness. And I think that's what he's saying, do even more than I say. All of us have relationships that have been fractured. Some of us can't make things right with people. They're no longer here. 
Um, but those that are here, we have an opportunity to, to live this out. So this obedience is an over-obedience. Let me explain it like this. I, w- I really want to drill down on this because it's convicted me. And it's caused me, I've reached out to some people that I've needed to. Uh, my tendency is, I'm fine. I'm fine. But I'm not always fine. You think I'm fine. I think you're fine. But we're not always fine. We're not okay. So you have to deal with things. Um, so the idea would be, if you're going to obey God with what he's already told you to do, he doesn't shine a light from Houston to Dallas and tell you that's where it is. That's where, what he does is he shines a light when you go from Houston to Dallas at night. He shines a light 15 feet in front of you. You go 15 feet and you've got enough light to walk in. You've got enough light to drive in. But if you're waiting for God to shine a light from Houston to Dallas, you're going to be waiting a long time. And we think that forgiveness is this big giant step, this big giant leap, when it's really a small step of obedience. God gives us just enough light, 15 feet. Then we travel that, and we've got another 15 feet. And we continue to take these steps, and we choose to forgive, and we choose to live and walk in the truth of God's Word. And then we're obeying what we know to do, and then when we do that, God comes along, and He blows us away, and He says, now here's the next step of obedience. So don't think of it as a big leap. Think of it as a daily walk, revealing confidence in your obedience. I believe you will over-obey. When I was a student pastor, we had camp in Brownwood, Texas. When I was a student, we did. And I was interning with Buddy Fortenberry, and some kids did what kids always do at camp when you lay the rules on them. They break the rules. I sent, I I think, seven kids home from camp in my years of student ministry. Uh, I've seen more than that sent home. But all of a sudden, at uh, 3 in the morning, we, we do a check and see if everybody's in their dorm. Well, we're missing about 4 at 3 in the morning. And so we've got this Q-beam light. And we got a golf cart. And we're, go- and we're shining the light. And if you know anything about Brownwood, there, there, there are some snakes and there's some cactus. And so these students that have escaped camp under our watch care, and we're going to go get them. So we, we hear them because they're running through the field, and you can hear. And all of a sudden, they landed in the cactus, and the, the rest is history. I didn't have to send them home. They sent themselves home. Um, they were torn up, beat up. Uh, but, but we shined just enough light to get about 15 feet. Then we shined another little bit to get 15. So just walking along in this obedience. So I want you to get this in your mind that when you're thinking about obeying God, when you're thinking about over-obeying God, think about the fact that God says, hey, just the small step of obedience. I'm going to give you enough light to do this, and then when you do that, I'm going to give you enough light. Don't think of it as a big leap. That's what Paul's saying here. Now, here's what he says. I write to you, still verse 21, knowing that you'll do even more than I say. The word knowing here is not knowing by experience. It's intuitional. It is uh, intellectual knowing. Paul just had this, he just knew. Have you ever just had intuition from God that you just know something? You know, when I would have students intern with me when I was a pastor and I would mentor them, I would take them to hospitals. And I said, let me tell you something. I'm going to let you experience what, what you need to know to go to a hospital. Never go to a hospital, Richard Harrison would know this, without knowing what, who you're going to see and what the condition is and what the situation is. Don't ask the person in the bed what's wrong with you. I made that mistake once. 
So I'm teaching this young, yuppie intern of mine who was, thought he was really smart. I said, well, she's 85. I'm going to check in. Watch how I do this. I, I know all these people. I'm here a lot. And they said, she's in the maternity ward. And I said, uh, now, I, 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 I've got faith, but I don't have that much faith. They said, no, here's the deal. She had, you know, this is back when they could tell you what they had. She, she had some kidney issues and some surgery, but they didn't have room. They, they put her on the maternity floor. So I said, these are things you need to know. And I was experientially sharing with him the do's and don'ts of hospitals. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying intellect, intu, intu, intuitionally, intuition, uh, it's a knowing that God gives. So he says, I've got confidence and in your obedience that you're knowing that you'll do even more than I say. So you're going to over-obey here. That's what he's saying here, over-obey. So, so think about this. Forgiveness is a gift that is granted, but trust is earned. Forgiveness is a gift that is granted. So when someone has hurt you, when someone has wounded you, and, and you mull over that and you, you think of it more than once and twice and the Holy Spirit prompts you to deal with stuff, understand that forgiveness is a gift, just like salvation is a gift. But trust is earned. When you let the person back into your life, it's okay to put up boundaries. Um, I knew a man that... <clears throat> had an affair and committed adultery on his wife and he got offended when he came back in the house. She forgave him. Forgiveness is a gift. But she had some boundaries. And she would say, let me see your phone. He got offended of that. And I told him, you should walk in the door and give her your phone. Because trust is earned. Trust is earned. Forgiveness is a gift. You choose to forgive. But trust is earned. And so we see the trust here between Philemon, between uh, Onesimus and Paul. We see, that we see that beautiful thing here. And God doesn't force forgiveness on us in salvation, and he doesn't force forgiveness on you to make it right with anybody else. God presents his will to you. He does not force himself on you. It is your choice. You can live in bitterness and anger and frustration, and everybody else will be affected negatively, or you can release it and let it go and live with a forgiving heart. So that's just verse 21. Now, verse 22. Here's, he changes it. He kind of just turns the toggle. But meanwhile, okay? But meanwhile, prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Here's what Paul's saying. There is availability in forever friendships. He's been in prison more than once. He's thinking he's going to get out at some time. Now watch this. He's a genius. And he knows that if you prepare a guest room for me, that I'm a forever friend, and as soon as I come to your house at the guest house for lodging, the first thing I'm going to ask you is, how's your relationship with this broken one that you had? You see, that's a forever friend. So there's availability in a friend. A friend will always, hey, hey, come stay. Have you ever had friends like that that they say, hey, if you ever come through town, come, you, you can come to my house. You, you, no room in the house is off limits. There are some people that are too prim and proper and, and everything's got to be nice. And they say, oh, you can stay over here, but don't go to the refrigerator. No, I want to come to a guest house that says, 
you can eat all the bluebell, you can have the iced tea, you can have whatever room you want, pick whatever room you want. See, that's a down-home welcome, and that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, hey, we're going to have a down-home welcome, and we're going to have availability as friends, and it's a reciprocal relationship where we don't have to delete contacts. That's what he's basically saying. But he's saying, I guarantee you, I'm going to ask you. I'm just reading between lines. He's going to ask him about this relationship. Um, And then he says this. Look at the text. For I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. How how could Philemon pray if he wasn't going to forgive Onesimus? Have you ever found that your prayers don't really go anywhere when you deal with bitterness? Have you ever felt like God's not real and it's just like, man, something is weighing on me here and I I can't quite figure it out. I can tell you what it is. It's when you take on more than you should and you don't release it to him. So God wants you to obey. So he says, hey, prepare a guest house for me, a guest room for me. I I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Here's what he says in verse 23. Paul takes a list of people. Most people, we do with this list what we do in Genesis where they so-and-so begat, so-and-so and begat, so-and-so, and we don't understand the meaning. I'm telling you, Paul has forever friends here. These are people that are in Paul's life now, and he mentions them at the end. It's like the biography channel. It's kind of like, oh, the scrolling at the end. Who are these people? I'm going to tell you, these are valuable friends to Paul. Paul was not a one-man band. Paul had ministry partners all over the place and people who would be in jail with him, who would be chained in the same prison cell that he was. And he says, I'm coming to the close of this letter, and I want to mention some real valuable people so that you understand, you see what he's doing here? These people are going to hear what you do with Onesimus. It's going to have a wider, it's going to affect the church in your house, Philemon, but it's going way further than the church at your house. These people are watching, they're believers too. He gives them a list. And these are what we would call little people. Some people say, oh, these are little people. These aren't big, Paul's big people. These are little people. Let me remind you, uh, Abraham Lincoln when he signed the Emancipation Proclamation where he set the slaves free. You remember that, I think it was, I don't remember the year. Um, But but that was a big deal. And, And there was this letter that the children in a schoolhouse just north wrote to the president, Abraham Lincoln, and said, Mr. Lincoln, we, we, we know that you have set the slaves free but we want to know if the children of the slaves are going to be free. The children, they want to know if they're going to be free. You're going to set these people free, but what about us as children? And so Abraham Lincoln responded to the little people. And it's called, you can look it up, it's called the Abraham Lincoln letter to the little people, his response. And here's what he said to the children. He said, it's not in my authority or right to grant you what you're asking. But he said, however, I do believe it is within the authority of God, and I do believe it's within God's will. Do you know how much that letter sold for? $3.4 million. Valuable letter, little people. This is little people in the text. But these little people were big people to Paul. And what we got to understand is value. Listen, we have a letter Abraham Lincoln letter to the little people sold for $3.4 million. We have a letter that for free that we can grow in. Doesn't cost us anything but our time. Cost Jesus everything by the Holy Spirit to write it. So these little people, 
The little people's letter, here's, what, here's the first guy he mentions, Epaphras. Epaphras was a fellow worker with Paul. It says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner. He was a fellow worker. He's mentioned in Colossians. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow prisoner. He knows what it's like to be in chains as well. He is a faithful servant of the Lord. Uh, he's a servant of the gospel. So Paul wants to make mention of the little people. Epaphras is the first one. And he said, this guy means a lot to me. You may think he's little, but he's big in my eyes. He's huge. He's my fellow prisoner. He's watching. He's watching. And then he says, he greets you, as do Mark. Circle Mark. We're going to skip over him for a second because I want to go to Aristarchus. Aristarchus is another one. Um, Aristarchus would have been a person in Thessalonica that would have uh, survived the riots and the beatings like Paul because what was happening is the gospel was going so powerful in Thessalonica that those who were selling idols to the goddess of Diana were being put out of business, so they were messing with Christians, martyring them, killing them, and, and Aristarchus was with Paul during all that, and so he's a faithful servant of the Lord. Epaphras, he, he's a partner in pain. He is a partner in pain. That's Aristarchus. He's a partner in pain. Sometimes you need partners in pain. You need to have people in your life that when you go through something, they go into the garden of pain with you, and they're with you in that time. Can I tell you something? There have been some people in this church that have hopped in my garden of pain. Two years, they've hopped in my garden. There are some people in this church that haven't even acknowledged that I'm in a garden of pain. And that's okay, because I'm not looking for them. I'm looking for the people that are willing to hop in with me. Follow me here. You're going to go through some times where you're going to need an Epaphras, I mean, an Aristarchus, a partner in pain who's, who's gone through some pain and who can relate to your pain. Um, you guys can understand that. There, there are some in here that understand what, what, what my wife and I were going through and will continue to go through until the Lord comes back. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It will be pain. It's that you should manage your pain in a healthy way. It's not that God's going to remove the pain. He's going to help us as we yield to him manage the pain. So you're going to need some little people called Aristarchus. Then Demas is the next one. Look at the list. He's making his list. Demas. Demas was one who started strong. Man, he was, had energy, he had passion, he had zeal, he had enthusiasm. But you know about Demas in 2 Timothy? He loved this present world, and he was a part-time partner. He was a part-time friend. He was a fair-weather Christian. He didn't, he didn't stay till the end. He just kind of revolted. And so you, you, you and I, we all know Demases. We all know people that we used to see here. They used to be engaged in the gospel. But they loved this present world. And maybe they allowed their pain to cause them to make choices that were bad. And then they said, if I go back to church, all they're going to do is judge me. All they're going to do is judge me. Which is not true. Because everybody in this room has got some stuff. All of God's children got some stuff. And so if we can't bring our stuff in here and be open about our pain, what in the world are we doing? We should just go do something else. We should be real. We're connected together. That's what Paul's saying. And then he says, Luke, Luke, my fellow labor. Luke was a physician. He was a beloved physician. He used the gifts that he had to help people on this journey of pain physically. He would go to places where people were sick. And Luke was a doctor. And so, so Paul mentions this list. But I want you to look back at verse 24. I left one out on purpose for a reason. Mark. Mark. You remember Mark? Do you remember Paul and Barnabas? 
Uh, Mark deserted them on the missionary journey. I'll give you the dates. So it was, uh, Mark was there to assist, to encourage, to be an assistant, to come alongside Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And so he started out in 45 AD, and um, he concluded, they concluded in 49 AD on this trip. But halfway through in 47 AD, Mark bailed. He quit. He just left. Paul mentions Mark here. Do you get this? Stay with me. Forget the time. Paul, the apostle Paul, needed encouragement. Mark couldn't give it. So from 45 AD to 49 AD, in the middle, 47 AD is when John John Mark left. He left. Mark's gone. He's gone. It came time for a second missionary journey, and they were time to launch out, and Paul and Barnabas were going to head out, and Barnabas said, let's bring him with us. And Paul said, he's useless. No way we're bringing him. You know what he did last time. And in Acts 15, they had a war about him. This is, this is back in 63 AD. Now we're in 63 AD. Paul is mentioning Mark. You know what that tells me? They reconciled. Paul and Mark reconciled. Look at the time it took. Look at the time it took for him. He would not be mentioning Mark if there wouldn't have been a reconciliation of a relationship. Now, here's what's important. Paul is asking Philemon to accept Onesimus back, but Paul is leading by example. A leader should always call himself to what he's asking other people to do first. That's what a leader does. A leader says, I have failed. I have messed up. I have blown it. Listen, there is power when you share your failures, when I share my failures, when I share my shortcomings. It encourages people to say, hey, this guy's just like we are. He struggles with some of the same things. Paul is asking Philemon, reconcile with him. I'm sending him back. And Paul's going, Mark's with me. We've already done this. It's a beautiful thing. 63 AD. 16 years later, they reconcil- there's reconciliation there. It's a beautiful thing. Now, I want you to understand, do not mistake reception with restoration. When a brother sins or a sister sins and, and they ask for forgiveness, we, we receive them back. We receive them. Who are we to say, hey, you, you don't deserve the forgiveness of God. So, so we receive them back, and we, we should. But restoration is the fruit of repentance, is the fruit of repentance. A lot of people say, we think it's repentance, but they're just sorry they got caught. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, you got caught in the affair. You didn't, and now, you, okay, you're, conf- okay. So, so yes, you say you're repentant. We, we welcome you back. We receive you back as Christ and God receives us back. But there's a time, and the point here is there was a time of separation. There was a time of restoration. Yes, the receiving was momentarily, but the restoration took time. There was a season in which there was a strengthening and a growing in a relationship. So the fruit of repentance is seen over time. We see that here. It's a beautiful thing. So when you think about that, he mentions Mark. Paul saying, do with him what I did with John Mark. Make it right. Make it right. No stalemate here. 
And then here's what he says. Look at this. The grace, verse 25, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Do you know how you forgive somebody? It's only through grace. Because your flesh and my flesh, we like to retaliate and we like to respond. I've already told you, you have a chance to maybe ruin somebody's life by a phone call, a word you could say. And we'll see in that moment just how much God is in you. But when you understand this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You know what Paul's saying? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace that God has given to us through Jesus Christ. He says, be with your spirit. The word with is a little word. Let me explain what it means. You, you are with me right now. You're in this auditorium. You're with me. But anytime someone leaves, you're, you're no longer with us. If Richard says, I'm done, I'm gone, Richard can get up and walk out, and, and Richard is no longer with us in this room. But the word with here, be with your spirit, the word with means it's inseparable. This pen is with me, it's no longer with me. The Spirit of God with me is in me. So through grace to your spirit, Christ in me, the hope of glory, is with me. That's how you forgive somebody. Because the law demands justice. Uh, the flesh wants to respond, but grace says, I'll yield to Christ who has forgiven me, and I'll let that forgiveness flow through me to you as a gift. Forgiveness is a gift. Trust is earned. Let's rebuild this relationship. Now, let me close with this. You're not going to believe this. We have the written Word of God, and we also have historical research in this as well. Early church fathers. When Paul, when Onesimus went back, we, we really don't know what happened. It doesn't really say. But in church history, we have an idea. So we think, people, scholars think that what happened was Onesimus went back and Philemon released him, not, not to just be, he didn't have to stay in the house. He could have said, hey, you come back, you be a changed man, you stay with me. And I'm sure Onesimus would have. But we, we, we believe he was released to be a servant of the Lord and reunite with Paul somehow, some way. Because Ignatius, which is an early church father, as he, in his recorded documents, as he was going to Rome to be martyred, he was sending out letters of encouragement to the heads of people at the churches, to the bishops of people who were overseeing churches. And he sends a letter as he's going to Rome. Colossae is here. Ephesus is here. He sends a letter to Ephesus, to the bishop of Ephesus, and he says, I want to encourage the bishop of Ephesus because he's doing such a great job. He is useful in the kingdom. Remember what Paul said earlier in the letter? He wasn't useful to me. He was useless at times, but now he's useful. Guess who the bishop's name was in Ephesus? His name was Onesimus. Could it be possible that the gospel is that powerful? That changed a man who is now leading a church, 
who has experienced not only God's forgiveness, he has experienced the freedom of a reconciled relationship, and he's been set free to serve. And as Ignatius is going to his death call and a Colosseum in Rome, he wants to make sure he encourages a bishop who's over there in Ephesus, and his name is Onesimus. You've got to be kidding me. The gospel would only go to the top in Rome with the elite, but God chose the foolish things to confound the wise. He'll do the same with you. He'll do the same with you. You say, I don't, I don't know what I have left in my life. I don't know what else I can do. I'm kind of older or I'm kind of younger. I don't have a plan. Listen, you just say yes to God. Let him do whatever he wants to do in your life. Just say yes to God. I know guys that are, I've known guys that are 80, 90 years old that, that started seminary at 80 and 90 years old because God said, go to seminary. They did it. They were already walking in. That doesn't make any sense. What are you going to do? No, I'm going to do what God told me to do. I'm already going to obey what I do know. So the next time he tells me what to do, I can say I obeyed him here, and now I'm going to obey him here. And then he'll bless me with another word of obedience over here. So the blessing is going to continue to flow, but it's going to be when I obey him. God can take people and take them to the top of whatever he wants to do for his kingdom and his glory. I'll close with this, and I said I'd close with that. So I've learned from the best around here. over the years. Rick Warren, you would know him. Um, John Piper interviewed him. You can probably find this on YouTube somewhere. I remember seeing it, and I watched it, and I kind of questioned it, and it fits exactly what this is. Uh, Rick Warren, a well-known pastor throughout the world. John Piper sat him down, was talking about, hey, you know, you've done the prayer for the last two inaugurations for presidents. I think Obama was one, and, and there was another one that he had done the inauguration ceremony. And John Piper said, well, do, do you line up with, their, uh, with the beliefs, the political beliefs of the president? And he said, that's not why I'm doing the prayer. And Piper said, why are you doing the prayer? Here's what he said. Listen to this. He said, I've got missionaries all over the world. Every country of the world, my church has missionaries all over the world. I am the pastor of those missionaries. He said, I don't do the inauguration ceremony for the prayer. I do it for the wider effect of the gospel. I'm a pastor and an evangelist first. I'm not a politician. But when people see me, and the whole world watches the inauguration of the president. He said, when people see Rick Warren as who I am as a pastor, and I've got people all over the world. When those missionaries get in trouble and they get in tight spots and they get in squeezes, I'm hoping that somebody that they are serving, some king, some ruler, somewhere is going to say, that's, his, that's their pastor, and somehow God's going to work a miracle. He said, I don't do the inauguration ceremony for the prayer. I do it for the wider impact of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's powerful. And don't think God can't do it through you. He can do, I have confidence in your obedience. I have confidence in your obedience. Hope you have confidence in my obedience. Let's pray. Father, we come. Your word is powerful. This is an incredible text. Kind of leaves us hanging until we look into research and history and church history and see that Ignatius sends an encouraging letter, a word to the bishop of Ephesus. Could it be the same Onesimus? Absolutely. Could it be another one? Sure. But what we do know is the gospel was going to the top. And only you can do that. Only you can release people 
to reconcile in relationships and to restore through a fruit of repentance of years and years of maybe misunderstanding and hurt and pain. In a moment, you can seal it, you can heal it, but it takes time to grow and trust as that relationship goes forward. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you continue to forgive me for my shortcomings and and my sin and my attitude and my thoughts that aren't always in line with your way and your thoughts. And I just continually say, Lord, forgive me. I missed the mark. I sinned. And you continually flow forgiveness through my life. And so when we think of forgiveness, we think of a person, a one-time thing. But may we choose to live in the flow of forgiveness with others. And may they see Christ in us, the one who forgives all sin. Father, we, we are your representatives on this earth. So I pray that this book is, will continue to live on in our lives as we interact day by day. And I pray you'd lead us as we continue to go as a church. And Father, the world is watching, the community is watching, um, transitions between a pastor of 53 years and a new young pastor that's come in. It's, it's kind of unheard of in America to have that kind of transition, that kind of longevity. But we don't look at transitions like the world looks at transitions. We look at transitions as you do. And when you ordain them, we see you at work. So we thank you for what you're doing now. We thank you for what you have done in the past and most thankful for what you're gonna do in the future. And we as your representatives can live in bitterness or we can be better people and live in forgiveness and let that extend to the world that we live in, our own sphere of influence. I pray you would use us. And if there's anybody here that needs forgiveness and sin from you, they would realize tonight how much you love them. It's not too late. They're not too far gone. There's hope in Christ. There's a gift of grace waiting for them to receive. You won't force it. You'll just say, here's the gift. We must take it by our free will. Thank you, Father, for these wonderful people, for the church that we have the opportunity to serve and live in community with. May this text be real in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.